0: Oh, Council, And welcome to the China Path podcast, where we explore the people-to-people and commercial links that underpin the Australia-China relationship. If you've not yet subscribed to the podcast, you can do so via iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And for those of you looking to access the podcast from within China's Great Firewall, you can now also listen to us on Youku. For all subscription links, please visit the episode homepage at www.acbc.com.au forward slash podcasts. On this episode, we speak with the ABC's China correspondent, Bill Bertles on covering China for an Australian audience. We discuss sourcing stories as diverse as waste, the economy, trade war, the AFL in China, Chinese politics, the Australia-China relationship, Chinese millennials, and even the rare issue of dog meat in China. We look at the life of a foreign correspondent in Beijing, from responding to stories as they break. Utilizing Chinese language in interviews, visa renewal and gaining access to Chinese government spokespeople. Bill also shares his experience of working for Chinese English language media and what the average Chinese person thinks of Australia. Bill Bertles has been the ABC's China correspondent since 2015, covering the rise of Xi Jinping, the trade war as well as the rapid changes in Chinese society. He's travelled the country from north to south to bring audiences stories on everything from China's big business football push to science and engineering breakthroughs. I hope you enjoy our discussion. I'm here today in the ABC studios in Beijing with China correspondent Bill Bertels. Um, Bill, how long have you been here in China? Uh, Well, in
1: total, James, I've been here about four years on and off. Okay. Uh, first came here in 2008 for a bit of study. Came back in 2010 and went to one of the Chinese universities uh, to really study the language properly. And then I took a job in Chinese state media in, in television because I wanted to stay here and really get to know oh, the right. place. Okay. So I've got this insight where I've actually spent a year inside Chinese state media. And that was quite an eye opener. Uh, I went back to Australia back to the ABC and I got posted over here in uh, 2015. So I've been back uh, two and a half to three years uh, in this particular posting. And, you know, it's a little while, but I guess the good thing for me is that when I came back here, it wasn't my first time here. Uh, I was coming in with, you know, a considerable amount of time already in Beijing. So in a funny way, it felt like, not like I was coming home, but I was coming back to a place that I was fairly familiar with. Were you working as a reporter
0: for the Chinese media?
1: No, I was working officially as a foreign expert. Okay. So um, these are people who are glorified editors. Right. We're we're basically polishing bad English. We're sort of writing stories, but we're not allowed to go out and report. Okay. Because um, most of what we're doing is translated stuff. Chinese journalists do it and then they try and write it in English and we fix it up. But they did want to make me an anchor because at the time this was xinhua the xinhua news agency Mm. you know the the absolute inner core of chinese state media yeah and they're a they're a news agency they're a wire service they're not traditionally into television okay so they got a whole stack of cash from the government back in i think 2010 and they started a new tv service to rival china's state service cctv okay to this day They are still broadcasting, not broadcasting, they're still recording and streaming online at this 24-hour English news channel called CNC. Nobody watches it. Nobody's paying any attention to it. I did notice it on cable TV in Europe when I was last there. Apparently, it streamed in Mongolia on one of the mobile phone service providers and in Kenya. Um, But yeah, it it basically was an eye-opener, not because it was very slick and competent, but because it seemed to be um a very bizarre project and as you can see these days uh, cctv rebranded in english as cgtn Mm. um, i wouldn't say it has a great deal of sway but it's got a lot of money and it's on uh, tv on cable services all over the world in hotels whereas the xinhua effort cnc the one i was involved with i don't know what's happened to it right i know it's still going i see their mic flags on the reporters i see the reporters out and about at the um at the events I go to. They've even asked if they can interview me. But I'm pretty sure no one's watching it. So that that was a pretty funny eye-opener, I guess, to the world of Chinese media.
0: Okay. So thinking about your current role, what does your average week look like? Are you predominantly stationed here in Beijing or are you darting off to all parts of China? Uh, It's hard to say there's an average week.
1: Okay. So basically, um, uh, sometimes we can have a really quiet week just here in the office. Mm. Uh, We do a lot of research. We do radio stories. We do live crosses. Um, but then other times you'll get a call and, uh, you know, somebody in Sydney will say, look, Trump's going to make the trade war announcement tonight about tariffs. Mm. So uh, you were saying you were interested in going to Shenzhen to do some interviews down there. Do you want to go right now? Can you go back home, get your bag, get okay. on a plane and fly to Shenzhen today? Right. And we want you in position tonight so we can go live to you in Shenzhen tonight. Okay. And we want a package tomorrow for the news, so get up early, do live crosses at you know four or five a.m., and then because uh, of the time zone, uh, and then you got to go do your interviews and you know edit it in the afternoon. So um, it can be really busy. Mm. Um, sometimes you know we might go to South Korea uh, if if there's a, a Kim Jong Un issue, for mm. example. What I do like doing is feature stories, ones that are off the agenda. I'll give you an example today. Mm. So here's a typical day before you turned up. This morning we went to interview a representative of China's biggest gay dating app, right. which is like the grinder of China. Okay. And the reason we're doing that is we're preparing a story about HIV okay. in China, and yep. they, they also have a service, um, a testing service. So we went and interviewed them, and then we got back here, we had lunch, and then we got in the car and we drove to a tip, like a rubbish tip because we're trying to find people who work in the recycling industry who are rubbish pickers, who basically go through you know, uh, and scavenge for recyclables. But we got to the tip, which we've been to before, and it's completely been demolished and shut down and locked up. No one's there. Mm. So then we drove around looking for another recycling point, and we found one, but it too had been uh, shut down. And so we were talking to some of the people who were still hanging around the area, and they were telling us that it's all been cleared out. So we drove back here empty handed, mm. you know, we were just trying to make some contact, set something up. In the end, we came back empty handed. Right. And then, you know, uh, that's, that's kind of a typical day. It, it, can, it can totally vary.
0: What are the predominant themes that you find yourself covering here in China?
1: I, I feel over the past three or, three or four years, um, there's a couple of major themes that have they just keep coming back into the news agenda. Um, Chinese politics, right? Xi Jinping, maybe not that interesting to a foreign audience, to an Mm. Australian audience, compared Mm. to characters like Trump and Kim Jong-un. But, you know, the rise and rise of this one man has been a constant theme. And even though we only focus on it at special times of the year, you know, when when the annual parliamentary meeting is on. Um, We nonetheless keep coming back to this theme of Xi Jinping and of the Communist Party's power because it has such a wide-ranging effect on everything here. Mm. So uh, I went to Qingdao recently. Um, We did a story about the world's biggest movie theater. uh, Sorry, movie studios by Wanda. They've just opened the the biggest, most state-of-the-art studios around. Up there, of course, we're talking about censorship because censorship is getting tighter in the current environment. So, um, you know, these sorts of themes about um, not just Xi, but the party and its uh, power and uh, the way that it interacts with the film industry or, you know, the recycling industry, for example. The reason why this uh, tip, rubbish tip, had been shut down is because the mayor of Beijing, who was a, an appointee of Xi Jinping, uh, he's been ordered to gentrify this city. And part of, uh, part of the gentrification push is to shut down landfills, uh, to, it's also part of an environmental push so all these things ultimately come back to the way that the party runs China okay. and, and the way that Xi Jinping runs China so that's a huge theme Yeah. Uh, Australia-China relations is a theme that we dip into quite a bit because things have been getting quite testy over the past year yep. so that's a big one and aside from that, look, I guess the environment story in China is one that always is interesting to people overseas You know, how does China deal with air pollution how does China deal with... Uh, Um, You know, the huge amounts of rubbish that are generated. Aside from that, um, the other thing I'd say is we do a lot of Chinese society stories, particularly about millennials. Um, It it might sound silly to be doing a story about love in China, but people are genuinely fascinated about uh, the different expectations between generations of what age you get married, how many kids you're now allowed to have. Uh, you know, these sorts of stories are constantly interesting to our audience.
0: Do you think the Australian audience has a very strong appetite for the political in China? Like, the average Australian person certainly knows a lot about the Communist Party, they know a lot about Chinese historical events, and I think maybe Chinese people would argue, well, why aren't people covering these more positive stories of what's happening in China? Do you feel like there's a reliance on the political when people are reporting on China? I don't think there is a huge appetite for it, mm. to be honest. Okay.
1: And I say this uh, out of frustration of trying to pitch more stories about it. Mm. Um, you compare yeah. China's political situation to the United States in terms of general interest and entertainment value. Mm. You, you can't compare it. Right. In the, in the Trump era, people are fascinated by Washington. Sure. They're, they're interested in what's going on in Beijing, but um, I get the impression that a lot of uh, people in Australia who are not China heads, mm. they, they think, look, this is too different. It's yeah. too foreign. There's a big language and cultural difference. Um, I think the average Australian probably isn't that well acquainted with Chinese history. Right. They might know the, the basics. Mm. Um, so you need to give a lot of historical context, even to talk about something like Taiwan. You always have to give the context, even in a really short story. Yeah. So, I don't feel there is the appetite, and I, I feel a lot of people in Australia are very interested in China, mm. and they want stories about Chinese society, mm. they don't necessarily want political stories, they're interested in the influence stuff, which is a huge story. Yeah. Um, but, comparative to the US or Europe, I don't think that level of interest is there yet.
0: Okay. What about Mandarin? Um, how, how essential is it having Chinese language skills when pursuing stories and speaking with people over here?
1: You know, I would have thought it is compulsory these days. Okay. But you'd be surprised by the number of correspondents running around here who don't speak any Chinese.
0: So they have a translator with them? Is that yeah. how they okay. Yeah, so nearly
1: all foreign media works with local researchers and translators. Okay. Um it's almost it's not a requirement of the government per se, but it, it almost is in a way. Like you can't function here without having at the very least local staff to handle all the administration stuff, dealing with uh, visas and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I know journalists here who speak impeccable Mandarin, they've been here for a very long time, but they still have Chinese staff helping them. Okay. They might not need them all the time, they might go do interviews by themselves. Um, but particularly with written Chinese, you know, if you're getting, if you have to wade through documents in Chinese, yeah. it doesn't matter how good your Chinese is, as a foreigner, you're going to be reading it so slowly. Right. Yeah. So. I think now it's, um, I think you need Chinese. You don't need it fluently, you mm. don't need it like a local speaker. But if you don't have enough Chinese to read Weibo or we, uh, WeChat or to um, at least understand the basic grasp of what's going on, yeah, I think that's a problem. Okay. I also think um, you need to uh, get people to talk to you, and you need to build up trust. and. It's hard to do that if you're standing there while the Chinese person who's your colleague is having the chat.
0: Oh, right. You know, it's
1: a lot better if you yourself can have that level of human interaction where you can just chat. Oh, that's interesting. So I would think it's essential that uh, people over here speak uh, some Chinese, like, you know, quite a bit. However, um, in the current environment, there is still a lot of foreign reporters running around who don't. Don't necessarily speak it and that's because they've been sent here because they're very good journalists. Okay, right Yeah, and I guess the flip side is you might have amazing Chinese But if you're if you're not very good at your job, uh, you know doing journalism Then that's not a good reason to be here either. Sure So it's, it's hard to get the mix where you got someone who's incredibly fluent uh, and is also a very good journalist I'm not saying I am yeah. but uh, there are a few I could who have been here a long time who I really look up to and admire um, they usually work for things like the New York Times or um, Reuters. You know, they're not usually broadcast journalists. Uh, but I think it's pretty rare to have that that double combination.
0: OK. Um, so what particular challenges are there when reporting from China? Do you have to be careful with what you report on?
1: Um, we don't. OK. In the sense that the Chinese government, I think, uh, they see the Western media through the prism of, for want of a better word, hostility. Mm. They already have this mindset that the Western media is out to get China. Okay, And this is drilled into people. Like yeah. When I first went to Xinhua on the first day, I was getting introductions from people. You know, Bill, this is so-and-so, this is so-and-so. Mm. And I had about three or four of these staff members they're really nice to meet you. Hey, I've got a question for you. Why is the Western media so negative about right. China? Yeah, it was like a drill. Okay. The, the, these people at Xinhua just this has been inculcated into their heads. Yeah. to the point where they didn't think this was a bit direct to ask me this question as soon as I met them. Yeah, you know. Um, so this is a common mindset. I'm sure the diplomats in the foreign ministry have this drilled into them. I'm sure Chinese officials have this drilled into them. Yeah. Uh, and so for that reason. I feel that the Western media can report things which the Chinese government would regard as unfair or negative, and the Chinese government wouldn't necessarily have too much of a problem with that because they would expect the Western media to be like that. Right, okay. So they would sort of say, oh, look, is the, is the ABC doing some negative story about China? Typical Australian media. Yeah. And they don't really care. Okay. Like, deep down they care, but they know that they can't control the Western media narrative and they sort of expect it to be a bit confrontational. So in that sense, yes, we can do whatever. However, um, there have been journalists in the past who have had their visa credentials not renewed and um, yep. potentially that could happen. Uh, you could you could uh, spend a, another year here and then your visa is up and you find that You can't continue. So that's a
0: yearly process, is it? Where you get your visa renewed? Yeah. So once
1: a year, year you have to uh, reapply. And usually, it's a pretty smooth process. Sometimes, there's an interview that you have to do with an official. Okay. Although, unless there's something they really want to talk to you about, uh, most of the time, it's just... Small talk, you know.
0: So do you think it would be different if you were reporting in Mandarin? Do you think there'd be more of a highlighted focus on the work that you do and transmit from China if it was in Mandarin? Uh,
1: yeah, big time. Okay. I think this is what they really care about. Um, I think that they are very, very concerned about controlling the narrative of Chinese language media worldwide. Obviously in China, but also in Australia, uh, America, wherever there is Chinese language media... I think over here, the government is super concerned about the content. English language media, not so much. Mm. They know that A, you can block it here, but B, the majority of people are not going to read it anyway. Okay. And uh, you'd be surprised how freely accessible major international news websites are here. Most of them are not blocked. Okay. They're they're slower to load. they're kind of harder to access, but the issue is, you know, 95% of Chinese people are never going to read them anyway, yep. and the, the 5%, roughly, who may be educated to the point where they're interested in reading Western media uh, news sites, yep. you know, a lot of these people uh, are beneficiaries of China's rise, and um, they're sort of the middle class, they're well educated, they're not, they're not the sort of people who are going to start a revolution. So in that sense, I don't think uh, China's government is uh, really that concerned about the content of what we do. Okay. They, they monitor it, I have no doubt, and they certainly didn't like that Four Corners Fairfax investigation that came out more than a year ago. Mm. Um, but I think deep down there's an expectation they have that we're going to do stories which uh, they may not be particularly happy about. However, they do actively um, uh, contact us about opportunities to cooperate, okay. to, uh, you know, to, to go on reporting trips to places. Uh, they are trying to tell China's story in a way that's more positive. And uh, you know, I'm not trying to do a job on China. I'm simply trying to report sure. whatever story I'm doing in a way uh,
0: which is, as, as I see it, as close to the truth as possible. So do you find that it's improving the access you can get to high-level officials?
1: No, it's getting worse. Right. It's getting worse. Uh, I mean, I don't know, I hear in the 1990s from the old timers, I hear that it was way better back then. We have pictures in this bureau on the wall of uh, one of our journalists, Helene Chung from like 1985, you know, a long time ago. And she's sitting there with the then, I think, Premier of China. She's sitting right next to him with a microphone sticking it in his face, asking him questions. Yeah. I, now, I can't get within you know, 10 metres of the Premier of China, let alone the President. Yeah. You know, if, I, if I go to the annual um, once a year press conference for China's number two leader, Li Keqiang, uh, I need to be invited to ask a question, oh, right. so the okay. foreign ministry will invite selected media in the week before and say, hey, would you like to ask Li Keqiang a question? If so, submit three questions to us and we'll choose the one that you can ask. It's that right. sort of thing, right? Right. Okay, Here's the Premier of China, whatever. But even if you go 10 rungs down and you're talking about a senior official in, say, the foreign ministry, yeah. we, no, we've got no access to them. We, we can't... It's not like Australia where you, you could maybe have a coffee. If you're a senior journalist in Canberra, you could can have a coffee and have an off-the-record background briefing about something. None of that is going on. Even with the old-timers who have been here and should have a really fat contact book, yep. you talk to them and you realise that they're not doing background briefings with anybody particularly high up either.
0: So is it possible to get an official word from anyone? So talking about this HIV story you've been working yeah. on, or the story on waste, yeah. is, it, is it possible to get an official word from anyone, even if you it's like a local Beijing city council? Yeah,
1: you can, you can. Um, the HIV one, for example, uh, we submitted, we put a, <laughs> we rang up, and then we sent a fax, and then we submitted questions to a national um, HIV prevention agency. Yep. And they just never applied to us. Okay. Not interested. Right. But we can go and interview, um, you know, people from NGOs or private companies or whatever. That's yep. fine. Okay. Um, environment, we can go interview, you know, Greenpeace or something. When you do get to interview officials, it's usually in the form of local officials rather than national officials. Okay, So we would go to the world's largest radio telescope down in uh, in uh, Guangxi province. Mm. And we get to interview officials from that project. Uh, or if we do, um, I don't know, we go to, we did a soccer story, right? And so we um, interviewed this school where they're teaching uh, kids out in uh, Shanxi province in central China. Mm. They're teaching them soccer, and it's a really nice initiative because they're fairly poor kids. Yeah. And so when we did that, the local uh, official, the local party official was happy to be interviewed. Okay. So it really depends on the story. Okay. Um, the foreign ministry, they obviously hold press conferences. Um, we, we sort of, you know, I guess we go to their drinks. We sort of know them personally, kind of, but mm. there's a huge distance. Okay. And those people are the spokespeople. They're not the ministers. They're not high up. They're just the spokespeople. So in terms of real genuine official access, we are kept
0: at quite a distance. Um, and so do you think that's likely to change in the future, or is that likely to change for Chinese language, where people can ask questions of ministers? Uh, in the current climate, no, yeah. uh, I think it's going in reverse. Okay. Um,
1: I, I can't see it changing under Xi Jinping. Uh, after him, whenever that will be, maybe it could change, I don't know. Mm. Um, it was loosening up under the previous administration of uh, Hu Jintao. Yeah. And we saw that in the form of uh, Weibo, which is like the Twitter uh, of China. So Weibo came up, it exploded in popularity, and everybody was getting on there, including um, local officials, including... You know uh, local courts they mm. were issuing their um, information about judgments and verdicts on, on Weibo right uh, commentators were talking about politics on Weibo it was still highly censored yeah but suddenly there was a public discussion in China that hadn't been there before okay and um, Weibo has been completely censored and shut down now it still exists but it's full of uh, cat pictures and cappuccino <laughs> pictures <laughs> right. right it's so boring we never look at it yeah right? okay um, so yeah, there was a period then when China was loosening up a little bit. I remember when Jiao Bao, the premier at the time, did an interview with CNN. Mm, yeah. um, current premier, Li Keqiang, I can't remember him doing anything like that, mm. let alone Xi Jinping. Yeah. Um, in future, though, uh, maybe 20 years down the track, um, if there's a, a liberal reformer in government, maybe yeah. it could open up a little bit. Sure. Um, one of the interesting things about all this is that Chinese state media is really boring. Yeah. A lot of okay. people just tune out from it. Uh, and it's boring because it's not responsive to its audience. So maybe if some sort of commercial imperative ever got into the state media, you might you might get a bit of a changing of the guard where, yeah. where, where China's government would realise in order to get a global audience for Chinese media, we need to loosen up a bit. But don't count on that happening for a long time. Hmm. <laughs> I,
0: well, thinking about how... Australia is seen here in China I remember being here a few years ago where every Chinese person you'd speak to knew about Kevin Rudd, everyone knew Luko and Chinese, yeah um, What's the equivalent of that these days? What's the average Chinese person thinking when, when they think of Australia, be, be beyond beyond kangaroos?
1: I think the average Chinese person's uh, knowledge of Australia is still at a surface level Okay um, because they say, hey, where are you from? Australia. And they literally talk about kangaroos. They go, yep. great weather, nice beaches, beautiful uh, beautiful air, clean mm. air. Kangaroos, you know, this is, this is the sort of thing they say to me. Um, they always say, very beautiful country, very be- I've seen it or I've been there or whatever, very lovely country. So um, that's still the main thing that people talk about. Yeah. Um. No one has uh, filled the void of Kevin Rudd in terms of famous Australians in China. Yeah. You know, no one's talking about any anybody new in the same way that they did about Kevin Rudd. I have detected in the past year since the relationship deteriorated a little bit. Mm. Um. I didn't. For for the most part, you know, the the foreign ministry and uh, the the state media used to put out uh, various uh, warnings and and, uh, negative uh, articles about Australia, and for the most part, I don't think it's really cut through. I have noticed noticed in more recent times that um, you have uh, people saying, I've had people contact me on WeChat out of the blue, and they say, hey. I'm hearing that Chinese people have been beaten in the streets of Australia, is it true? Right, okay. And I say, well, I don't think so. Mm. Um, So that's happened a few times, but generally speaking, when I tell people I'm Australian, I just don't think that uh, people have a negative view of the country, no matter what they're reading in the state press here. You know, things like Australian wine, uh, vitamins, steak, all those things which Australia exports Mm. to China people really do know that you know steak from australia is better than steak from most other places the okay. wine from australia is very good so overall i think uh, although um there's not much cultural identification with australia you know people don't recognize any australian celebrities or singers or anything like that uh you know the afl's uh, for two years in a row they're playing afl games in china is, yeah. is it cutting through yeah i don't really think so <laughs> yeah. to be honest Uh, but um, the overall things that they do know about Australia, I think, are still overwhelmingly positive.
0: So in Australia, we treated the China-Australia free trade agreement as essentially the watermark in the Australia-China relationship. Mm. Not only was it quite a positive trade deal, but it celebrated the strategic relationship of both countries. Mm. Was it celebrated similarly on the China side? Was it something that Chi- the average Chinese person would know about? No, but
1: that's because China was knocking off free trade agreements with about 50 countries at right. the time. Right, okay. Um, so, yes, it was celebrated. It was on uh, lots of coverage in state media. Okay. Um, certainly, it was a very uh, positive rollout of uh, stories about it. Um, the average Chinese person might not have any great reason to know about it, but anybody who's involved in business... Or exports, or imports, or whatever, mm. they knew about it. Okay, you know those who needed to know about it certainly uh, celebrated it. Uh, the government certainly celebrated it through state media. Um, at the time, it was very, very positive. And uh, the only reason why it wasn't as big a headline here as it was back in Australia is because they were also, I think, doing a free trade agreement with uh, several um, neighbouring countries. Okay. I think Korea at the time. Mm. Um, so from China's perspective, um, it's, it, it was a great thing to do, but obviously Australia is not as important to China economically as China is to Australia. Uh, and I guess... Um, the excitement in Australia reflected the fact that China's our biggest trading partner. Yeah. But of course, for the Chinese, they're everyone's biggest trading sure. partner, pretty
0: much. When you look back on your time here, Bill, and all the stories you've made, which ones are you particularly proud of?
1: Probably the one, I'm, I don't know if I'm proud of it, but I, I remember it a lot, and it's still going. Okay. Uh, I'll give you two. Okay. Um, it, it was one of the first stories I did, and uh, it's, it was a lawyer uh, who was a, a very gutsy... Uh, lawyer who took on sensitive cases. And uh, he was trying to defend a friend of his who was another lawyer who was uh, locked up, so he was in a bit of a bad situation. Okay. Anyway, so the thing was, uh, I traveled down to the city of Tianjin with him, uh, and uh, we tried to visit his client in a detention centre. And uh, of course, it, it all went a bit pear-shaped because I was a white guy with a camera hanging outside a Chinese jail. And we ended up getting detained and uh, we got released after a few hours, but I got interrogated in the back of a Chinese police car and it was literally a good cop and a bad cop, oh, right. you know? And okay, my, my Chinese, it's okay, right? It's not too bad. But yeah. um, I figured at the time, the best thing I could possibly do was just to pretend I couldn't really speak Chinese. Okay. So that's how I got my way out of it. I was like, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't know what this place <laughs> is. I don't even know what city we're in, you know, suddenly my Chinese was non-existent. Yeah. So that was memorable because you know that's quite a day at work, right? Mm. And um, what's memorable about it is uh, it's not a particularly nice story, but that lawyer who I profiled a couple of years ago, he's now in jail, okay, uh, and he's facing eleven years in jail for basically for activism. So it's a it's a memorable story. Uh, the original lawyer who was in jail at the time, he's still in jail, uh, but his wife has become a, a real sort of crusading activist. So. I remember this story because A, it's still going, but B, it's, um, you know, it's, not a, it's not a nice story, but I guess if there's a silver lining in it, um, the, the woman who I interviewed, who was the wife a couple of years ago, was sort of really, um, really upset. And you could see that she wasn't particularly confident of, about this terrible situation that her family had been thrust into. Now, she's, she's really developed into this um, passionate activist who has a cause. So I guess you know that's an interesting way of, of looking at this story and seeing where it goes. Um, the other one I'll just quickly mention is completely different. Uh, there's a story at some point that will be broadcast, <laughs> maybe uh, later in the year, uh, on uh, on dog meat, mm. and it's year of the dog here in China. Yeah. And uh, you know I like to do these uh, year of the the rooster, year of the dog type stories because yep. I think you know it's interesting. Yeah and we were down in Wangxi province doing another story and uh, down there there's a bit of uh, dog meat that gets eaten Mm. so my cameraman and i we decided to go to a dog meat restaurant you know we ended up doing this proper story with uh, animal activists and you know we really looked at the issue of dog meat in china and it's really not that widespread but down there that night uh, we're there with this guy. It's a family-run restaurant. He has these two nine-year-old daughters. They're twins. They're so cute. They're so lovely. He's got the wife there. She's chopping up the dog, and he's the one cooking it in the wok. And it's you know, and he's so positive and enthusiastic, right. and you know, and so uh, we've been filming for a couple of hours. All these customers are coming in. Uh, they're they're drinking, you know, wine or like local baijo, and anyway. We sort of say to him, look, mate, uh, thanks so much for talking to us. Thanks so much for letting us into your restaurant. It's been a wonderful night. You know, we'll be in touch once this story comes together. Yeah. And he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't leave without trying my particular local dog meat uh, hot pot. Like, oh, of course. You, you haven't tried it. Yeah. Sit down, sit down, <laughs> sit down. I'm going to do a whole pot just for you two. And my cameraman, Brant, I looked at him and he's gone all pale in the face. He's like, oh, no, nah, mate, I'm not eating that. No bloody way. So it, it fell to me to eat the dog yeah. and uh, you know, I'm there and you know, I've got the chopsticks in and out comes this slither of dog and I've got Mr. Wu the chef and I've got several of his loyal customers surrounding me and yeah. you know, I eat it and they go, how did it taste? How did it taste? <laughs> and of course I want to be the polite guest yeah. and it did actually, it did taste pretty good. Yeah. So I sort of said, um, I said, oh, you know, it tastes, it tastes like lamb, it's really nice. And they said, eat more, eat more. And I sort of said, oh, look, I've got to be honest, I'm not hungry, you know, one one slice is enough, thank you very much, we've got to go. So, you know, situations like that are, could only really happen in China or Korea or, you know, some of these countries over here. And um, I came out of it thinking, Mr. Wu, the chef, you know, he lives in such a different world from, say, these dog owners up in Beijing who are absolutely furious about Mm, dog meat. Right. So it's nice to do a story like that where you can kind of dip into both worlds. I personally. I'm not a dog lover. I don't really have a strong opinion about it. Obviously, yeah. Yeah, but I know a lot of people back in Australia have a lot of passion for dogs. But for me, it was interesting because that's just not a story you can do in Australia. Yeah. And same with the one about the lawyers being locked up. You know, you can't do that either. So, you know, we do some, I think, really um, positive stories about, you know, we went down to the world's biggest sea bridge that China has built I think it's an amazing piece of infrastructure. The world's biggest radio telescope, it is amazing. I mean, Mm. the stuff that they build over here, the speed with which they do it, the engineering is just astounding. And I like doing those stories because they're big stories about scale and ambition. Mm. But at the same time, we always uh, have to also do some stories that uh, touch on other areas of China, which perhaps the Chinese uh, authorities might not see in such a positive light. Uh, either way, it's always interesting.
0: Mm, Excellent. All right, well, thanks a lot for the chat today, Bill.
1: Yeah, thanks, James. Thanks for dropping
0: by the Bureau. My thanks to Bill for having me at the ABC's Bureau in Beijing. The story he discussed on waste in China was recently released. It's a fantastic piece on the business and social aspects of recycling in China and we'll put a link on this episode's show notes at www.acbc.com.au forward slash podcasts and I strongly recommend you check it out. The China Path podcast is supported by the Australian government through the Australia-China Council of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Thanks again for listening and until next time, Zaijian.